0: One of the uh, phenomena, I think, of our hyper-individualized age is that social media has taken the place of real person-to-person relationships. People have hundreds of friends on Facebook, and yet they find themselves to be very, very lonely, increasingly isolated and Cut off, desirous of real relationships with real people. Furthermore, I suspect that the proliferation of online Bible teaching and sermons and things like that have contributed to the decline in church attendance particularly among the younger generation. I mean, after all, why come to the church with all its warts and wrinkles when you can get the very finest Bible teaching by staying home? And you can do it when you're convenient, when it's convenient for you. You can, at any time of day, you can consume great Bible teaching. And there is some very, very great Bible teaching available on the Internet, to be sure. There's a lot of junk, but there's some very good stuff. But I think that people misunderstand the purpose of Bible teaching when they approach it from a consumer point of view. The idea that I just, you know, I want to get fed with, with good Bible teaching. They miss the point. That the teaching of the Word of God is to be conducted in the community of the people of God, for it is the teaching of the Word of God that that moves and changes uh, people's hearts, draws them to Christ, conforms them to His image, and enables them to live interconnectedly in a a local body. I think people stay away. We, uh, We observe here that there is Constantly a uh, certain turnover. I don't mean just in terms of people leaving and going somewhere else. I'm just talking week to week. There's 20% or so of the church that's missing every single week. Sometimes it's as high as 25%. There's a certain sense, I think, in which the local church is somewhat optional for people. And as I say, I think that this is Uh, Perhaps particularly true among the millennial generation, and it's troubling and concerning. Friends, the church is not an optional part of our Christian experience. The church, the local church, is essential to our walk of faith with Jesus Christ. You cannot grow in the likeness of Christ without close and serious involvement in a local church excuse me, in a local body of Christ. It's just not going to happen. Because that's the way God has set it up to be. The church is the only organization on this planet that Christ has specifically promised to prosper. The only one. There are very many, many good Christian ministries and endeavors, but none of them have the promise That the church has. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. He has committed himself to the building of the church. Now, admittedly, this promise is directed to what theologians call the universal church. That is, the, the worldwide gathering of believers that make up the body of Christ. It is not a promise to a particular, specific local church. However, it is local churches who are the visible manifestation of the universal body of Christ. You cannot know or see the body of Christ outside of the context of the local church. And in fact, as you read the New Testament, the majority of the New Testament is directed to local churches, local churches. When the Spirit of God set Paul and Barnabas apart, he said, set them apart for the work which I have for them, Acts chapter 13 and verse 2. And later in chapter 14 and verse 26, when they report back after that first missionary journey, they report back on the task of church planting, and Luke there calls it the work. Luke fourteen, twenty-six. So lest there be any confusion about what was the work that Paul and Barnabas were set apart for, it was the work of planting local churches. If you're not already there, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3 and beginning in verse 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13, not all today. But I've entitled this, The Priority of the Local Church. The Priority of the Local Church. Let me read for you, actually I'm going to read the entire chapter. Ephesians chapter 3. Verses 1 through 21. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things." so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory." and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. In light of the amazing truths that Paul has been teaching here in chapter 2 about Jew and Gentile together in one body on equal footing before God, access, verse 18, chapter 2, through one spirit to the Father, <coughs> Excuse me, being built into a dwelling for God in the Spirit, the very temple of God. In light of that incredible reality, Paul wants to pray for the believers. He is moved to pray for them. And he is moved to pray for them that they would understand the depth of God's love for them. But, much as he often does... A thought comes into his mind, and he is diverted. The Apostle Paul um, was so brilliant, and I think his brain was so filled with truth, that he he was going in one direction, and and a, a thought or a statement caused him to veer off into a rabbit trail, and that's exactly what he does here. He is drawn off by his statement here about being a prisoner. And this, this statement about him being a prisoner of Christ Jesus actually leads him off in verses 2 to 13 into an autobiographical tangent. You've got to love Paul, right? He'll, he'll uh, say, now first of all, and he'll list something, but there's never a second of all. I think he intended to have a second of all, but he just never gets to it. So here is a tangent. We're going to be looking at verses 2 to 13 here as a tangent. A tangent dealing with Paul's own role as God's chosen instrument to proclaim the message of reconciliation that he has just been talking about in chapter 2, far and wide. And it's because of his role in declaring this message of reconciliation between Jew and Gentile and between man and God that Paul finds himself here as the prisoner of Rome. After verse 13, notice he begins again in verse 14, for this reason. You see verse 1, for this reason. So he gets back on track again, beginning in verse 14. But we want to look at the diversion. We want to look at the diversion because in it, there's some important things. Paul's message and his ministry was directly related to the Gentile mission. That is the work of planting local churches made up of Jew and Gentile as one body on equal footing before God, and this was a revolutionary message. We're 2,000 years removed from it, so there's a certain ho hum to it for us, I think. Furthermore, we are part of what are mostly Gentile churches, So we don't even really sense the animosities that existed that that the gospel overcame in Paul's lifetime. But as we look here at these verses in Ephesians, we can find three significant statements about the priority of the local church. Three significant statements about the priority of the local church that we need to hear. We need to hear them in our own day so that we live out the truth of the gospel in this very critical realm. Okay, so three truths. We're not going to proceed through this uh, verse by verse. We're going to group some things together and look at some of these uh, these big ideas, three of them. So the first truth, and it's the only one we're going to get a chance to get to today today, is simply this, the local church is a stewardship that must be fulfilled. This is a critical statement. The local church is a stewardship that must be fulfilled. When the ascended Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road, his life was changed forever. Luke narrates that account for us in Acts chapter 9. No longer was Paul the intellectually brilliant and zealously motivated persecutor of the followers of Christ. Instead, he was now their greatest defender. He was directly commissioned by the ascended Christ to be his apostle. Paul recounts this for us in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 8, 9, and 10. Paul, as he was now known, Saul of Tarsus, now known as Paul, was given a very explicit task and message. And it was to bring the gospel and its earth-shattering implications to the Gentile world. God chose the Pharisee among Pharisees, the one who was steeped in Judaism, the one who was advancing beyond his countrymen of uh, those of similar age, the, the, the foremost Jew of the Jews, as it were, and he chose him to be the conduit through which the message of the gospel, and in particular, the gospel message of Jew and Gentile together on equal footing before God needed to go to the Gentile world. We see in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, Christ's commission to Paul. The Lord said to him, that is, Ananias, the one who was supposed to go and, and uh, baptize Paul. And he says to him, go, Ananias, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul, as he writes here to the Ephesian believers, he he does so, notice verse 1, as a prisoner of Rome. He is a prisoner of Rome. He is under house arrest. He is now in Rome, chained to to a Roman soldier... And he is awaiting trial before Caesar on the charges of causing a riot among his countrymen. But what I want you to notice here is that Paul doesn't see himself or refer to himself as a prisoner of Rome. Look at verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. He sees himself as a prisoner of Christ, not a political prisoner of Rome. In other words, Christ has so captured his heart, so controls his life, that it is his faithfulness to his apostolic commission that is the reason why he is imprisoned. And it is this imprisonment, actually, that forms, uh, from a literary point of view, what's called an inclusio. Where you see, Paul talks about being imprisoned, verse 1, for the sake of you Gentiles... And notice down to verse 13, he says, Don't lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf. His imprisonment, he understands, is for them. Now he says, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. Verse 2 is a little difficult in the beginning here. If indeed you have heard, it causes some to to, uh, postulate that, uh, that this letter was not addressed to the church at Ephesus. What they would say is that Paul spent three years ministering in Ephesus, which is true. And so how could it be that those there in Ephesus wouldn't know or have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that Paul had? I think my answer to this would be that it has been six or seven years since Paul has been in Ephesus, and churches those days, like churches today, have a certain amount of turnover. So people come and people go. And so I think what he is basically saying here is, says, if indeed you have heard, or surely you have heard, I think that's the way the ESV translates it, surely you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you. The focus here is on his apostolic commission, the stewardship of God's grace. The word stewardship is a, is a great word, oikonomia, and, and um, it has the idea of, of administration. It can be used to, to speak of a plan that is administered, It can speak of the task of administering something. And it can speak of the responsibilities of an administrator. And it's related to the word oikos, which is house or household. And so the the oversight of a household is a stewardship. That kind of an idea. Now, notice over in verse 9, where the word appears again, it's translated there, administration. To bring to light what is the administration of the mystery. And there, the word refers, I think, to an administrative plan, in fact, the administrative plan of God, which has now been revealed, and we'll get to that verse here in a bit. But here, when Paul says, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship or the administration, I think what it's talking about here is is the responsibility that Paul has to administer something. And what is it that he has the responsibility to administer? It is God's grace. Do you see it? Verse 2. Indeed, if you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, if you have heard of my responsibility to administer God's grace, well, what in the world does that mean? And what does it mean for Paul to administer God's grace? Up to now in this epistle, the word grace, when it's used, it's used to speak of the free gift of salvation that God has has generously provided to the most undeserving of individuals. It's used that way over here in chapter 1, where it says, uh, To the praise of the glory of His grace. Uh, Verse 6, Which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Over in chapter 2, it's used in the same way there. And For example, in verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, verses 7 and 8. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, right? So it's used previously to speak about God's unmerited favor, the gift of salvation. But here, in verse 2 of chapter 3, it has a different connotation. Here, it refers to God, Paul's God-given task of, of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, resulting in the planting of local churches. Here, it's the administration of a responsibility. Now this idea of of the task of church planting as a demonstration of God's grace in Paul's life is not a new idea. In fact, it occurs all over the place in Paul's writings. He was very much aware of the reality of this, that, that, that he had been given the grace of God to do something. For example, let's trace a few of them. Galatians chapter 2, verses 7 and following. Paul is speaking here about his uh, trip up to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem council. And he says, verse 7, But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me. There it is. James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So recognizing the grace that had been given to me, Paul says, they shook our hands and said, you know, God speed to you as you go out and bring the gospel to the Gentiles and plant Gentile churches. We see it in First Corinthians chapter three, verses nine and ten. First Corinthians three, nine and ten, where Paul says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, there it is again, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. Philippians chapter 1, verse 7. Philippians 1, 7. Paul writes there to the believers at Philippi, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. And then Romans. A number of times the concept appears here in Romans. Romans 1 and verse 5. Romans 1, 5. Paul says, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. To bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Chapter 12, verse 3. Paul says there, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And this is the lead-in to Paul's whole discussion that will occupy all the way through, halfway through chapter 15, about living together in community as Jew and Gentile. And then lastly, chapter 15, verses 15 and 16. Paul says, I have written very boldly to you on some point so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So, when Paul talks here, back to Ephesians 3, when he talks about the stewardship or the responsibility of God's grace, what he is talking about is the commission that has been given to him to plant local churches among Gentile believers. And in particular, churches in which Jew and Gentile live and worship side by side as the new community, the new people of God, the one man, with their access to God in the Spirit on equal footing. Now, I want you to see something interesting here. Because Paul will use the same term, grace, over in chapter 4 and verse 7 to widen it beyond his commission... And to speak about yours and mine. Notice verse 7 of chapter 4. He says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he'll go down to uh, to verse 12 of the same chapter. He'll say, For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, down to verse 16, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. In other words, Paul will say that this grace gift is not just his, although it is, and as we're going to see, it's his in a very unique way, it's also mine and it's also yours if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ here this morning. You too have a stewardship. I have a stewardship. And the stewardship involves... The building up of the local church, the building up of the body of Christ. So we have a stewardship, not the same as his, but we have our own responsibility to build up the local church. In commenting on this, one writer says the following He says, quote, God did not simply give him, that is Paul, the gospel message of grace to take to the Gentiles. But the assignment to do this is itself, in a special sense, God's grace given to Paul. So the idea is not just the message for Paul, but the very very, uh, assignment to take the message was for him God's grace. Now, let's take a look at this stewardship, a little closer detail here, exactly what is it. And it's really twofold. Paul presents it here for us as a twofold responsibility. First, it was a mystery revealed to him. We see that in verses 3 and 9. It was a mystery revealed to him. Paul says, verse 3, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. Verse 9, And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So we're introduced to this term, mystery. Part of Paul's stewardship was the fact that there was revealed to him a mystery. Now the word mystery, mysterion in the Greek, it just comes over to us transliterated, is not like the English word mystery that you and I are used to. When we use the word mystery, we refer to something that is puzzling, something secret, something incomprehensible, even something dark. It's used here in the New Testament, and there's a, there's a wide range of use for it, and I don't want to get into all of that, but here in the New Testament, when the word mystery is used in the New Testament, it refers to something that was previously unknown and beyond human discovery that has now been revealed by God and has become an open secret Within the church, in other words, those that are part of the church understand the mystery it 's been revealed to them it is still it is still dark and incomprehensible to those outside the church, but inside the church we now understand. what is the mystery that has been entrusted to paul well we'll have to wait till next week we get to verse six where he will uh, detail it for us so just um, for this morning, it's enough to know <clears throat> that, that part of Paul's stewardship, part of his administration, part of his responsibility, part of his commission, <clears throat> is the fact that a mystery was revealed to him. Now, this mystery, take a look at verse 9. The administration of this mystery, that is the, the administrative plan of God here. In fact, I can even, I think, comfortably call it the plan of salvation was previously hidden in God. You see that, verse 9? The administration of this mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. It has been hidden in God, the the sovereign creator, since the beginning of time. For ages, since the beginning of time, the sovereign creator uh, has retained this mystery within himself. In other words, the, you know, you know, we, it's hard to keep a, the secret going here when you've read the whole passage, but, but the Jew to Gentile together, right, on equal footing is something that was not known before God disclosed it. This reconciling work of Christ to bring Jew and Gentile together to himself, equal footing, direct access through the Spirit, was something that had been planned by God since the foundation of the world, right? Back to chapter 1 and verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That means that this is not an afterthought or God's plan B. The church is not plan B. You know, Jesus came to Jerusalem to present himself to the nation and uh, they rejected him and God said, oh, now what am I going to do? Oh, I know what I'll do. A plan B. I'll just create a church. Not at all. This has been the heart and mind of God from the beginning, from before the beginning. And it has been hidden in God until he was Pleased to reveal it through Paul. Now, this mystery that has been revealed to Paul is is part of the stewardship of God's grace. And it is what Paul has passed on. You see verse 3. He has passed it on to his readers where he says, as I wrote before in brief. Well, where did he write before in brief about this mystery? Answer, chapter 2. Chapter 2. <clears throat> I have briefly written to you about this, is what he's trying to say here. Now, question. Why did Christ reveal this mystery to Paul? Why did he choose Paul? And when did he choose Paul? Well, let's start with the when. When did he choose Paul? The most likely time that Paul received the mystery or the revelation of the mystery was at the time of his conversion in Acts 9. It's likely then. In Galatians chapter 1, uh, Paul details for us his receipt here of the mystery. Where he says, beginning in verse 11, Galatians chapter 1, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen "...being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus." So I think the answer to the question of when did Christ reveal the mystery to him would be when he saved him there on the Damascus Road and in the subsequent days as Paul was blind and meditating, we're told in Acts 9, upon the word of God. Now, was Paul the only one to get this knowledge? Was he the only one to whom Christ had revealed the mystery? And I think the answer we have to come to is no, he revealed it to all the apostles. How can we say that he, how do we know that he revealed it to all the apostles? Well, the answer is simple. It's the gospel. And he revealed the gospel to all the apostles. And so this is not something that only Paul got. They all got it. And we can see evidence of that in in the life of Peter, for example, right? Remember Peter in, in Acts chapter 10 and 11 where he there, and uh, he's really hungry, and uh, he gets a vision, you remember this, of the sheet that is lowered down with all the animals on it, and God says to him, arise, Peter, kill and eat, and he says, you know, far be it from me, Lord, I've never touched anything that's not clean, and three times it happens, and the Lord says to him, do not consider unclean what I have made clean. And then Peter goes to Cornelius, preaches the gospel, right, and they all believe, and so. Peter has the mystery revealed to him. And in fact, we know that that Peter gets it. And I just want to point this out to you because I think it's really instructive. We know that Peter gets this reality in Acts chapter 15. So I'll go ahead and turn you there. Acts 15. This is one of those verses where uh, you ought to circle it. Acts 15 verse 11. It's really an incredible statement. This is at the Jerusalem Council, right? The council called to try to decide how do Jews and Gentiles uh, operate. It's not a denial that the Gentiles are saved. It's a question of how do they, you know, do they have to come under the law and to what extent and so forth. But what I want you to see in verse 11 is Peter's statement really quite amazing. And it it demonstrates that Peter understood the implications of the vision that he received prior to his evangelistic message to Cornelius. He says, but we, right, he's talking to the Jews here. He says, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Do you get that? Peter doesn't say, and we believe that they are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that we are. He flips it. He flips it, and he says to the Jews, we believe we're saved like them. So Peter gets it. They're together before God, uh, saved in the same way and united in one body with access to the Father through the Spirit. So Paul didn't uniquely receive this mystery, but I think that uh, Paul understood it probably better than anyone. And the reason I say that is because of his rebuke of Peter that he speaks about in Galatians when when Peter, who did understand it, gets sideways right and and, uh, breaks table fellowship with the Gentiles and Paul publicly rebukes him over that. And beyond that, just the writing of the New Testament, it, it's Paul's message, it's his ministry, really, and, and it appears through all of his letters in the New Testament, this mystery. And I think that perhaps is true because Paul was uniquely prepared of any individual of his day to carry forth this, this ministry, the, the, the implications of this message, right? He was Trained in the Old Testament in a way that none of the other apostles were. I mean, Paul had graduate degrees in theology, as it were. He knew his Old Testament at, a, at the level of a Pharisee, and the rest of them, you know, they were tradesmen. And so, Paul, as he, as he meditates on all that he had learned in all of his rabbinical training of the Old Testament, once the blinders came off his eyes, he began to see connections all over the place and the implications of it all. <clears throat> it enabled him to, what he says here in verse 4, it sort of plumbed the depths of the mystery, right? And he says in verse 4, my insight into the mystery of Christ. I think Paul had an insight into the mystery here at a level that was greater than his other apostolic compatriots. So part of the stewardship here of Christ of, uh, of of the mystery of Christ uh, was, or, or part of the stewardship rather, of, of Paul's commission was his was the mystery of Christ that was given to him. But it, but it's beyond that; it was a ministry as well that was entrusted to him. He had to do something with the knowledge. So it was a ministry entrusted, right? A twofold commission. It was a, a mystery revealed, a ministry entrusted, and we see that in verses seven and eight. Where it says, The gospel of which I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me, according to the working of his power, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So not only did Paul uh, receive from Christ this mystery, this knowledge, but. God placed Paul directly into the service of gospel ministry to make this known. In other words, Paul was not an armchair theologian, right? He didn't just write books and to you know, theology texts. He was out there planting churches, evangelizing. And he was tasked here, he says, to preach... The unfathomable riches of Christ, the the boundless, the the endless, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Right? That which is past knowing. So what are these unfathomable riches of Christ that he's called to preach? Answer? I think it's what's been revealed here in chapters 1 and 2. Contextually, I think that's where you have to look. These are the unfathomable riches of Christ. In other words, they're boundless. Paul, in all of his great training, in all of his, of his inspired understanding of the Scriptures, still, when it came to God's sovereign election and predestination and, and the work of Christ and, and all of this, he could only go so far himself. And then you arrive at a, at a place where the finite cannot encompass the infinite. And so there's a limit. And his job, he says, is to, is to preach to the edges of the limit. It's more than just writing theology. And it's more than simply preaching to sinners the, the good news that through the cross of Christ you can be vertically, vertically reconciled to God. It's bigger than that. It's deeper than that. It's wider than that. It includes the responsibility to clearly preach to the believers, the implications of the gospel. And as you read Paul's letters, that's basically what he writes about. He's constantly writing about the implications of the gospel. And one of those implications is that the gospel creates a unity, right? It creates the one new man. It it bridges, no it doesn't bridge, it obliterates the divide between Jew and Gentile that which for millennia had divided humanity it's obliterated in Christ that is an implication of the gospel and what that means to you and me my friends is simply this that the gospel if it obliterates the the Jew Gentile divide then it obviously must obliterate the temporal and petty differences that often divide You and I in the local church, right? If this message brings together in the local church Jew and Gentile, then it obviously has to bring you and I together. And so there's no place in the local church for the kinds of divisions, the fleshly divisions that often arise. And they arise because we have either misunderstood or more likely forgotten the gospel. Now, Paul considers this, uh, this um, entrustment to him to make, you know, of a ministry to make the, the mystery known to be a very, very serious obligation on his part. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, Paul reflecting on it there, he says, For if I preach the gospel, <clears throat> I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. He's saying that that I have to do this. This is what I have been saved to do. This is what I have been called of God to do. This is what it means to be faithful. Verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. And then notice verse 8. To me, he says, the very least of all the saints. You know, beloved, I don't think Paul ever forgot his life prior to Christ. It hung on him. It sobered him. Not only did God save him, but God commissioned him, God placed him into service of the gospel to build up the very church that Paul was actively trying to destroy. I think that's why he says, I'm the least of the saints. There's not a false humility here. There is a, there's a, a sense in which Paul will never, ever forget what God has done for him. Woe to me, he says, if I don't preach the gospel, right? If I do it voluntarily, I got a reward coming. But if I do it against my will, I still have a stewardship. I still have an obligation. In other words, I have to do this. So I might as well do it voluntarily, don't you think? Over in 1 Timothy, chapter 1, by the way, 1 Timothy is written to Timothy, who is pastoring the church in Ephesus. Paul speaks to him there, verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considers me faithful putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul was absolutely convinced that his purpose in life was the proclamation of of the gospel, which leads to the planting and building up of local churches. That's what his life was all about. That's why God saved him. It's what animated Paul's life. So as we think on these things, there's a question that comes, right? There's an obvious question in all of this. Why did God save you? Why did he save you? Paul says his life is an illustration and an example of the grace of God that reaches out so that no one is beyond the reach of God. But think about your own life. Think about your time before Christ. Why did God save you? What is your commission? You're not an apostle. But why did he save you? What responsibility has he laid upon you? And maybe say it this way How is this local church being built up because of your presence here? How does your presence in this body build it up? Cause it to mature together. What do you supply? These are serious questions. And they deserve a serious consideration. May the Spirit of God use His Word to apply the truth where it's needful. Let's pray. Our Father, as we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, it's easy to set him on a pedestal, as it were, and to see him as a superman, as somebody who sort of floats through life a little bit, ab- above the fray, someone who suffered to be sure, but, but someone who was so unique that we can't identify And how wrong we would be. For he was a man like us, with all of the weaknesses, all of the foibles, all of the fears, all of the temptations. Yet, Father, we can see as we look at his life that he was a man on a mission, he knew his purpose. And he never lost sight of it, at least not for long. He could finish his life and say that I have kept the faith, I have finished the race. I have accomplished the task that you set before me. Our father, how we would like to be able to voice those same words at the end of our days. But our Father, if we don't know where we're going, if we don't know our purpose, how can we ever know when we've arrived? And so, Lord, we are early in a new ministry year. All kinds of opportunities for service. and But it's not about filling up rosters with warm bodies, people who can fog a mirror. It's about each of us uh, understanding who you've made us to be. What are our gifts? How do we benefit the body? And do we care whether the body's benefited by us or not? Lord, these are deep and serious questions and they deserve a deep and serious answer so I pray, Father, that your spirit would really work in our hearts. That we would not just brush these questions aside. But that you would help us to examine our own hearts before an open Bible. And Lord, you would enable us, each of us, to fulfill our stewardship of grace. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.